Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Zephaniah. As somebody said when I told them I was preaching from Zephaniah, they said, I forgot that was still in the Bible. <laughs> Zephaniah, four books from the end of the Old Testament. If you haven't been there in a while, and I'm guessing we haven't. Zephaniah, you know, it's interesting how the Spirit leads us, sometimes without us realizing it at the time. I was working on a couple ideas this week for a new series and um, none of the new series ideas I had included the book of Zephaniah. But I was reading through this book uh, in my own personal study when this text that we're going to study this morning just jumped off the page. And it reminded me of a conversation that I had about seven years ago, and it matched some articles that I read this week. So when I started to kind of get into the text in depth and to fit the pieces together, I saw and believed with all my heart that the Holy Spirit was spurring us to study this passage today. Now, I want to say at the outset that there are going to be some, uh, a lot of statistics that I'm going to give you, many of which maybe we've heard before. Uh, they will sober us and, and I hope awaken us, but I want to really encourage us this morning that God has called us, God has given us power. And that the reason we're going to talk about these things kind of in the first half of the study is so that we will get stirred to conviction and we will get stirred to action. I definitely hope and pray that this will not be a uh, kind of an oh snap, what am I going to do study? Like what, what can we possibly do to, to stem this tide? I hope it will be an oh snap, we got to get serious and we got to get busy. That, that this will awaken us, this will stir us, that this will uh, allow us to see the calling that God has given to us. So, um, the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 12. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. And tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, it is, um, excuse me, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will, quiet, he will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the fame and gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at that time, when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, the name of this study is The Remnant. And while verse 12, if you look at it, is clearly referring to a group of Jews 
who remained with both nations, Israel and Judah, after the captivity of both nations. I believe there are tremendous parallels between what the Spirit is saying to them 2,600 years ago in 620 B.C. and what he is saying to us today in 2019. About uh, the time that the church launched, I was having lunch with my friend Al Toledo, who's pastor of the Chicago Tabernacle. And we were at McNamara's on Irving Park Road in Chicago. I remember it well. We were in the second booth from the back on the right side. We were eating warm potato leek soup and crusty bread. Oh, so good. I'd eat a bowl of that right now. Best potato leek soup in Chicago without question. And I know now we're hungry, right? Now we all want soup. But I give you those details because that conversation is very, very vivid to me. At the time, Chicago Tabernacle had been looking for a building for years since they had outgrown their a small brick building that was in a neighborhood in Lakeview. And Al and I had looked at and prayed over numerous properties from car dealerships to warehouses to old church. A lot like our first six years as a church when we were looking at any building that was open. And that day he was kind of a little bit discouraged because the church didn't seem to be growing and they were kind of stuck in that 300 to 400 range and it seemed like maybe the hunger for the Lord was just waning just, just a little bit. And we were also discussing changes within Christianity and, and the increasing signs of kind of doctrinal concession and, and spiritual compromise that have been showing within the body of Christ for years. And I'll never forget the look on his face. I can picture it right now. When he sat across the table to me and said, I just feel like I'm preaching to the remnant. And that phrase stuck with me as I've pastored this church and as I've stayed very aware of the trends within Christianity and, and the changing social science of the American church. And I started to ask myself over the years, are we living in that remnant time where there's a large-scale rejection of Jesus Christ and the Bible? And even though we haven't seen maybe a, a dramatic carrying away like happened with Israel and Judah, it seems very clear to me that that is imminent. And I believe that, that when we ask those questions and when we look at some of the things we're going to look at this morning, there's no way we can't answer yes to both questions, especially here in the United States. Definitely in Western Europe, which has dramatically changed in terms of religion and spirituality, and certainly in countries... Um, that we would expect to be stronger like Canada and Australia and, and, and uh, countries like that, that that we would view as maybe more spiritual. And yet at the same time, there is a spiritual rebirth and revival in Asia and in Africa and in South America. So what do we do with that? How do we respond? And what do we need to understand about what's going on during our time? Well, I believe there are four facts that we need to understand and accept if we're going to be stirred to deeper conviction. Because remember, the purpose of this study this morning is to stir us. It's to build in us a deeper conviction, and it is to prompt us to action. So if we're going to do that, if that's going to be the end result, then we've got to understand some facts about 
what's happening. And these will not be groundbreaking. They maybe won't be surprising to you. But I feel like we need to restate them and be clear about what's going on. Because the Spirit's encouragement, and it is, His encouragement to the remnant here in Zephaniah 3 is also a call to us. If you love the Lord this morning and you're hungry for a spiritual revival, and several of you have said that to me in the last couple weeks, there needs to be a revival. Well, if we're hungry for that and we really love the Lord, then we need to understand the the playing ground, right? What's happening around us. So these are going to be on the screen. You can write them down, but let's be clear about a couple things. First of all, we live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian culture. Any thought that we're still a Christian nation or maybe that we were ever a Christian nation have rapidly dissolved. And really, I believe that without a revival or a change in what the church is doing, we are simply a generation away from seeing an almost irreversible transformation of Christianity as a whole. Now, let me quote a couple recent studies by very reputable Christian organizations 29% of Americans consider themselves to be a born-again Christian, not not a believer, not a churchgoer. Born again, when we talk about what we've just celebrated at the table, that salvation through Christ alone, redemption, cleansing, adoption, that that our lives are changed, that we go from death to life. Born again, that that kind of 70s term. 29% of Americans consider themselves to be born again. But only 15% of Americans say they strongly believe in all four of these statements, okay? 15% believe that the Bible's the highest authority, that it's very important to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior, that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice to remove the penalty of sin, and only those who trust in Jesus alone as their Savior receive God's gift of free, eternal salvation. Only 15% of Americans believe all four of those statements. One in ten millennials, and before us boomers go, ha-ha, those stupid millennials, only two in ten people over 50 believe that. So we have no right to swagger around and say, well, the, the generation is so lost. No, we're lost. So 15% of people believe in what we know is, is the truth about the gospel and the truth about the Bible. But even so, in terms of morality and and laws, I think it's stunning how quickly changes have taken place and how new standards have been uh, inculcated and accepted as mainstream. Four years ago, less than four years ago, the Supreme Court of the United States approved that gay marriage would be the law of the land. Now, 37 states have same-sex marriage and unions. There are now anywhere about, and I looked at it and I was amazed, there are about 55 gender designations that have been proposed. On New Year's Day, New York became the first state to pass a law that parents on the child's birth certificate can mark X for gender so that the child can just figure out what gender they want to be when they're older. Anatomy doesn't matter anymore. And as Christianity and biblical and logical conviction erodes there is a rapidly increasing movement in the United States for Islam. By 2040, 20 years from now, Islam will replace Jews as the second largest religion in our country. Now, adding to that problem is the second fact, 
And the second fact is there's a decrease in biblical and theological literacy among Christians. Now, start with the recent study that found that 24% of Americans believe that the Bible is, quote, the actual word of God to be taken literally. You say, well, all right, that's one in four. That's pretty good. Well, 26% view the Bible as a book of fables, legends, and moral precepts recorded by man. Then add to that the study, and I know this is a lot of stats, at thestateoftheology.com. You may want to look at that later, which found deep confusion, their words, deep confusion among evangelical Christians about biblical theology. This is Christians now. 35% believe that God accepts worship from all religions. 73% of Christians believe that Jesus is the first being created by God. And 61% say religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not objective truth. That's among Christians. Then the third fact, because it only gets worse is that there's a strong decline in church attendance. 58%, excuse me, 59% of evangelical Christians believe that worshiping alone or with their family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Now, I'll grant you, attending a service is not the end-all, be-all, right? But if we're not in church, how is there going to be effective discipleship and training? How are we going to have an impetus to worship? How are we going to gather strength from doing what we just did, singing Jesus paid it all, or calling on the Lord in prayer, or, or being spurred to evangelism? If we're not doing that together, and church is just in my living room in my pajamas, I have a hard time understanding how I'm going to be a stronger believer. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some do. And listen, I know summer seems really far off on a 10 below day, but I want to encourage you guys now, watch out for how much you miss Sundays in the summer. I know we love to travel and camp and go do whatever and we just need a break. And I've been, Listen, we got to be careful of that because we need to be together as a body. I'm not trying to get bigger attendance. I'm just saying this is for us. This is what the Bible tells us to do. And then all of that, all of those three things you see on the screen is laid on the foundation of the fourth fact. I kind of buried the lead, but, but this one ties into the other three. There has been a strong shift from discipleship churches training Christians to fulfill the Great Commission to what are called attractional churches. Now, this change has been undeniable. We have moved from teaching doctrine and preparing believers to be spiritually mature and to evangelize and to bring people to Christ and bring people to church, to making church attractive, mostly, and this is nothing wrong with this, mostly to non-believers and people on the fringe at the expense of the believer in order to hope that somehow by them coming, they'll be interested in God. And the methodology for this has been to use cell group-based teaching that's focused on relevancy and needs and worship that's aimed at entertainment and performance. Now, the attractional church tends to have bands that are, that are leading a passive audience that the, that the audience is kind of watching. Communicators, and I'm drawing this from an article I read, communicators that speak more to the head than to the heart and, and to have less engaged people who have come to kind of 
quote-unquote experience church instead of connecting to each other. And, and the result of that, according to the article, is that we have a less transcendent view of God. As uh, Lynn referred to, or Patty, I can't remember which, very, you know, kind of the man upstairs and the big guy and, and this, this kind of attitude that God is not transcendent, that he's just kind of one of us, just kind of our buddy. And that has eroded our sense of discipleship. Interestingly, this article I read, which is from a very cutting-edge pastor in Canada who's very up on the trends of Christianity, he said the attractional model is struggling more and more because people are increasingly wanting to actually worship instead of watch. They're wanting pastors that will speak to their heart, and they want to be in part of a congregation that engages with each other and has a strong mission to reach people for Christ. I was encouraged by that because it signals that there may be a fresh hunger for a church that is, quote, personal, more emotional, and real. Now, I believe, according to Zephaniah 3.12, that that's the cry of the remnant. The Lord spoke to this group of people in Israel and Judah here in Zephaniah 3, and like all the other books of the prophets, and I've been reading through the prophets, and I am amazed and, and almost shocked. I've been a believer 43 years this summer. I've been, I've been stunned how often God has to say the same thing over and over. If you really read the prophets, and you men, we're reading through the Bible this year, right? You start reading through the prophets, and you're going to go, he's saying that again? Like, he has to repeat this again? How many prophets is it going to take until they get the message? And that's exactly the point. Because over and over and over and over and over, consistently, God keeps giving warnings to his people about their continued sin and their refusal to obey, and he provides abundant and compelling evidence. He's specific in naming all the ways that they've ignored him and rejected him. So they can't say, well, we didn't do that. No, he's, he names specific. This is when you did this. This is what you did. And this is, and now I'm going to give you more detail, how I'm going to discipline you, how I'm going to take you into captivity. But here's the amazing thing when you read the prophets. God always at the end comes back to, I'm loving and I'm merciful and I have plans one day to restore you and bless you. And when you're reading through chapter after chapter after chapter to the point where you're kind of like, I can't do another chapter of God telling them how much they've done wrong and the evidence being so compelling. When you get to the end, you go, oh, praise the Lord. Why would God do that? After the mountain of evidence, why would God restore them someday and bless them? Well, this book is no different. Zephaniah is a statement to Judah, that's the lower two nations, Judah and Benjamin, that, that's a statement to Judah that judgment is coming on the nation first and then on the enemies. And in the first part of chapter 3, maybe you have a subheading above it, verses 1 to 11, he, he says Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, the nation's going to be carried away because you've been proud and defiant, and then the judgment's coming. Now, if you read chapters 1 and 2, it's the same message. But you get to chapter 3 and verse 12, and after two and a half chapters of kind of depressing news where you go, why am I reading Zephaniah? Because this is bringing me down. You get to verse 12, 
And all of a sudden, it changes to this powerful, hopeful passage about this remnant of people that have the right heart before the Lord. And God says, I'm going to help you, and I'm going to bring joy to you. Now, if there's a parallel, and I strongly believe there is, if there's a parallel between what God is saying to the remnant in Judah and what God wants to communicate to us this morning then we have to understand several characteristics about these people. Because if we're going to be a remnant that God's going to help and bless and bring joy to, then we have to have the same characteristics that they did. So notice what he says in verses 12 to 13. He says, you're humble and you're lowly. Now that wasn't just because of their bad circumstances. It also indicates a spiritual brokenness. Hebrews said, God opposes the proud And gives grace to the humble. So it will be impossible for us to please him and walk in his blessing if we are not willing, and let me add the word, we are not excited to humble ourselves before the Lord. Remember the three offerings we talked about last week? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand whether or not you did them. But let me just remind us, the burnt offering of repentance and consecration, the grain offering of praise and thanks, and the oil offering of personal dedication. Do you, do you remember those throughout the week? Did you wake up in the morning and go, oh, I, need to, I need to praise the Lord. I, need to offer. I thought of that. I didn't think of it when I first woke up because I was really tired. But as I was driving to church this morning, the Lord reminded me of those offerings, and I had to praise him for that. Are we committed, and I mean really committed, to daily consecration, before the Lord, to self-sacrifice before the Lord every way because it starts, the first thing God says is, they were humble and lowly. Then notice second in verse 12, it says that the remnant took refuge in the name of the Lord. The word refuge there means to flee in order to put your trust and hope in the Lord. So what were they fleeing? Well, they were fleeing their enemies. They were fleeing the nation that came in and took them captive. They were fleeing crisis. But I believe for us this morning, since we're not fleeing from a nation that's coming in and taking us captive, I believe what we need to flee this morning is weakness. Weakness in our walk, weakness in our convictions, weakness in our actions. It's only when we're focused on the power and sufficiency of the Lord that we'll be strong because we took refuge in him. But we have to see this as more than just being strong in ourselves because it's not just all about us. The greater purpose of being strong in the Spirit's sufficiency is that it enables us to fulfill the calling to influence people to trust in Christ. See, one of the tricks of the enemy is that he says, well, okay, you can be strong and powerful in the Lord and you can be, you can be uh, doing better and you can get through the crisis in your life. And eventually we start to focus on ourselves and say, well, that's great. Look at me. I'm wonderful. I'm happy. I'm content. Everything's great. God says, I didn't do that just so you're happy. I did that because you have a calling. Your calling is to minister to people and to bring people to me. So we want to stay away from kind of self-centered thinking that was present in those four facts that we looked at earlier. We want to move away from that because each of those four things that we listed have emanated from a love of self. Look at the list you wrote down. Every one of those things emanates from a love of self, and that's always been the enemy's push. And we have to fight against it within our hearts 
and we need to fight against it for the lives of other people. Look at verse 13. The Spirit then says something about the remnant that it almost never describes Israel in the Old Testament. It says they were pure in their hearts and actions. They will tell no lies. They will do no wrong. That, that's not what the prophets have been telling the people, but it shows, and I love this, it shows there was a group of people who loved the Lord. There was a group of people that was committed to be consecrated, to be holy and set apart. Now, I just want to ask you this morning, can we imagine the impact we would have, just our church, imagine the impact we would have if increasingly we made that determination and we lived it out wholeheartedly. One thing I can promise this morning is we will not have much of an impact if we don't. Those trends that we talked about are going to just keep going farther downward, but I am so encouraged that there is a fresh wave of disciples that is saying this is not going to continue. We're going to change it. And church, I want to be that group. I want to be one of those remnant groups that says we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to allow the enemy to win, at least on this earth. So they were pure in their hearts and actions. They're humble. They took refuge in the Lord. They're pure. Fourth, would you notice what sparks in our hearts at the end of verse 13? They were not fearful or intimidated by what was going on. Now, I heard kind of the groans and moans when I gave those statistics earlier, and that's why I said at the start, I don't want these facts to depress us or make us feel defeated. What I want them to do is stir us to get awake and to stir us to get into action. We need to be a people that has a spiritual backbone that stands firm and that we stand firm out of biblical conviction and bold consecration. The more we get into the Word and the more we dedicate ourselves to the Lord, the more we're going to have a spiritual spine. And that's our calling, and it is a tremendous privilege. It's not a burden. The Great Commission and making disciples and telling people about Christ, that's, that's not a burden. Sometimes we treat it as, oh, i got to do that. No, that's a privilege. It's a privilege because of this table. Jesus died to save us. We just sang it. He cleansed us. He washed away our sins. He made us white as snow. The song is beautiful. And then he adopted us as his children. And the only thing he says is, tell people about it. Tell people what I've done. Oh, we can gather together as a church. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, look at what the Lord done. Oh, communion. It was wonderful. We sang to the Lord, and then we go home and watch the game. And there's no difference, there's no impact, there's no telling people about it. Our lives don't look very different from everybody else. But when we come, oh, praise the Lord, praise, raise our hands. It's not the way it works. We need to boldly live this out, and it's our privilege. Because our purpose is to bring glory to Him, right? And then to ask Him, as we studied two weeks ago, Lord, have your glory showed through me. And all around me for your sake. And here's how gracious the Lord is. He is ready and willing to bless us even though we don't deserve it. And for those who love him and are faithful to him, even in the most difficult times, we're going to look at the rest of this. It says, I'll work to bring you joy and contentment and victory. 
Now look back at verses 14 to 17, and let's finish our study. Because not only were they not taken into slavery, there's this remnant, as everybody else goes to Assyria and Babylon, there's this remnant that's not taken into slavery because the Lord protects his people, right? But, but God not only didn't just, all right, well, you don't have to go into slavery, but you're on your own. No, he, at that point, secures them and strengthens them. And when we read these verses, I want us to read what's happening here personally. I want us to claim these promises because just as he said this to the remnant in Judah, he is saying this to us all throughout Scripture, that when we know Christ, that God secures us as his own, he strengthens us through his spirit, and then he says there are benefits out of that. Not that it's about us, but I'm willing to do this because I'm a gracious God. So we need to claim these promises for ourselves. First of all, verse 14, he brings great joy to us. Oh, Christians, we need to have greater joy. Too many Christians walking, no, no, no. We quote it a lot, but let's let it sink in so we'll be convinced and act on it. In his presence is what? Tell me. Fullness of joy. If you are lacking in joy, you need to get in his presence. When will we learn that that is our greatest source of comfort and strength? He never fails us, and we will never, ever be disappointed when we go into his presence. And when we do that, look at verse 14. Look at what should be our response. He says we should shout, we should shout for joy and triumph. What was the last time you shouted for the Lord? Oh, we sing, shout to the Lord of the earth, let us see. Power and majesty, praise to the King. Right? I'm not being facetious here. I, I'm, I'm thinking about asking you to do it, but I won't. But when was the last time you shouted for joy, the Lord? Like you, oh! Right? Like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a very reserved person. Good for you. I shout at people when they cut me off. I shout when there's a beautiful hockey goal. Oh, whoa, look at that. Run it back on YouTube. I shout when the sun comes out on a 10 below day. Praise the Lord, it's blue outside. No more gray for me. My soul has been saved by Jesus Christ. When was the last time I shouted about that? We need to be more open and more demonstrative about how much we love the Lord. We need to be more open and demonstrative about how grateful we are to him. Because when you look back at verse 14, what does it say? It says, with all our heart. So I pray that our times of worship and singing and our times when we pray will reflect that more. Well, I don't know if I want to be part of a church like that. Well, you better. 
Because if you're staying here, that's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that we walk in, it's so loud, and there's so much praise, and we're lifting our hands to the Lord, and we're thinking about how God's redeemed us from sin, that it's loud. And I'm not talking we cranked up the main on the board. I'm talking about voices, where you can't even hear the instruments, because we're just shouting to the Lord. He'll bring great joy to us. Second, would you see verse 15? He takes away judgments from us. Listen, if you've been forgiven and saved, don't overlook that. Don't take that for granted. Every sin has been defeated and erased by the blood of Christ. That is an amazing gift. And it has freed us from eternal joy and punishment. If anything's worth a shout, it's that. Then he says in verse 15, I'll clear away your enemies. Not just not only the devil, who's our adversary, but the devil's been completely defeated by Jesus. Don't ever forget that. But God will also clear away the pervasive attacks that go along with anybody who opposes the gospel. The, the Lord says, I will clear them away. What does that mean? It means to make them turn back so their influence declines. In other words, when we're walking with the Lord and we're a remnant and we're finding joy in Him and He's taken away our judgments and we're praising Him, He says, when you're under attack and people are criticizing you for standing with me, you just stand firm and you trust me and I'll take care of it. Don't, don't get uptight now because you're in spiritual warfare. Just, just trust me. Just call on me. I'll be near to you. I'll be your very present help in time of trouble. I'll clear all that junk away. And if I haven't, it's because you need to be refined. So you get back in my presence. You get close to me. I promise I'll clear it away. And then along with that, fourth blessing, verse 16, he says, I'll remove your fear. Fear and anxiety has increased among Christians, and it's come to the point of being debilitating. But listen, one of the greatest strengths of trusting in the Lord is that his perfect love does what? It casts out all fear. Do we believe that or not? When fear is on the attack, and there's fear from uncertainty, and, and, and we have fear our needs won't be met, we need to live as one of the faithful remnant. And we need to turn that mourning into praise, and we need to shout for joy and say, Lord, I am in a fight but you are so faithful and you're so wonderful and I'm asking for this fear to evaporate. Listen, don't let your spirit personally argue with that truth this morning. Just believe it because fear will put up a great fight, but he has already defeated it. I'll bring joy. I'll take away judgment. I'll clear away your enemies. Remember, these were unfaithful people by nature. I'll remove fear. And then look at how he reminds us of all he's done in verse 17, his fifth blessing. He says, I will stay near to you, and I'll defend you, and I'll pour out my victorious love on you. Listen, if you're down this week, and you're discouraged, and you're just like, boy, I don't know what I'm going to do next, I want to encourage you I bet a pastor's never said these to you before. 
I want to encourage you to run to Zephaniah 317. What about the Psalms? Psalms are good. But I want you to read Zephaniah 317 again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love, and he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Put that on a card. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it on the dashboard of your car. Make it the background on your iPhone. Well, I'm going through so much. Yeah, and look at that verse. God's your victorious warrior. Well, I, I don't, I'm, I'm living in fear. No, he's going to rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Listen, I'm not trying to minimize our issues. I'm just saying this is an awesome promise that the Lord has given to those who love him. This is what we can stand on. And it not only spurs us to endure, it spurs us to be passionate and to be motivated that being part of the remnant is an experience of great power and gives us the opportunity to have great influence. So as we said at the start, it's time to get serious and it's time to get busy. Because the Lord is at work and he is looking for a humble group of people who will take refuge in him and will be faithful to the calling that he's given to them. And I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those people. I want to be one of those people. Let's ask him to give us boldness.